0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 517, John, chapter 1. I would imagine over the Christmas holidays, you'll see new people visit our church, or perhaps you'll go to a family get-together, or a work party, or some other gathering, where you're going to meet someone you didn't know. Maybe you'll meet someone that you've noticed before from a distance, but you didn't know much about them. Or you will meet someone you have never seen, talked to, or met a day in your life. And then we'll find ourselves in that situation where we have to break the ice, initiate some kind of conversation so it isn't an awkward silence, staring at one another. Or for some the. For the more introverted and shy among us, maybe we wait for them to do that with us. Or even for the super shy among us, we hope they don't approach us at all. But if a conversation does ensue against our will or with our will, we'll probably start off with some pretty easy surface-level questions, right? What is your name? Where are you from? What do you do? Are you a Razorback or a Sooners fan? These are questions that usually give us enough leadway to strike up a conversation in order to get better acquainted with another person. It's because when we meet someone for the very first time, we we all have to start somewhere, right? We can't jump into the deep end with most people getting to the deepest heart level in the first 30 seconds. I mean, if you do that with the average person, you're going to see them dip, duck, and dodge and never talk to you again. It's probably wise to keep it light at first. That's why questions like these can seem innocent. They're not too aggressive. But after getting those answers to those questions and exchanging the small talk just for a little while, it's then we're tested on how much we really like small talk, isn't it? Your mind begins to race, your palms get somewhat sweaty. Do I I keep the conversation going or do I leave before it gets really awkward? Do we talk about the weather, the game last night? Do we talk about Christmas plans coming up or, or do we try to actually go deeper to get to know one another on a more personal level even in this first interaction? For most of us, unless something about the conversation intrigues us, We sadly tend to forget much of the conversation, even in a matter of a few hours. Pastoral confession, I can't count how many times I've had that embarrassing moment when you meet someone, shake their hand, and even said, nice to meet you, and suddenly forget their name a few minutes after you met them. So if you're visiting with us this morning, please don't get offended. If I or our members forget your name at some point, even the members of this very church Forget each other's first and last names every once in a while. And as just kind of a sidebar homework, members, if you're prone to forget someone's name as a member of our church, grab one of these membership directories from the staff office, use it as a prayer guide, and use it as a cheat sheet when you're at church if you forget someone's name. So what makes a first impression a lasting one? What does it take to keep the conversation going and leave you wanting to know more about another person? Well, this morning in our sermon passage, one of Jesus' early disciples, the Apostle John, wrote to his hearers about who the promised Messiah is and his primary purpose for why he would come to this earth and the primary purpose for why John would write his gospel we read in John 20, at the very conclusion of John's gospel, why he wrote this thing. He says this in John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if you've never read the Gospel of John before and you're wondering, wow, what are these 21 chapters in the Gospel of John all about? You know, I've heard John 3.16, but John 3.16, friends, is in light of an entire gospel. To get the context, we need the entire book. But John 20, 30 to 31, tells us the purpose of why his gospel was written. But this morning, we're not looking at the conclusion of his gospel, but the beginning, the prologue or the preface in John 1 to one eighteen, as John introduces us to Jesus. And friends, he does so in a way that the other gospel writers don't do in the same way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Friends, as John introduces us to Jesus, I hope and pray that this prologue, this introduction that begins, maybe it feels like small talk, will leave a lasting impression on us an indelible effect on our hearts that makes us want to know Jesus more, hunger for him more, desire him more, to serve him all the more, to worship him all the more. So what does John say about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus in this first conversation where John introduces us To Jesus. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not know him. But to all who believed in him, who received him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, this is he of whom I said, he who came after me ranks before before me because he was before me for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law came through moses but grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known john has now introduced us to jesus This is God's Word. After reading this introduction to John's Gospel and hearing these references to this mysterious person, who John intentionally calls the Word and the light, it is somewhat unclear and confusing at first, especially if you're new to the Bible. But many of us might be more familiar with the name Jesus, which John mentions right there briefly at the end of his introduction. Look with me again at John 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, under the old covenant, Moses was the mediator between God and the people of Israel, as well as the human deliverer of his law to his people on Mount Sinai. And he was the instrument that God used to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. Here, Moses is compared to Jesus from the lesser to the greater. In other words, Moses and Jesus might be compared to some degree, but friends, Moses is not a close second to Jesus. He's not close in rank, close in renown, or close in respect. Friends, Jesus is in a league of his own. You see, Jesus is not the law mailman, but rather the law author. He wrote the mail, and his mail has been authorized and approved by God the Father, our Creator, the Almighty. And the words in the mail are sent from heaven to us as the very words of God. Thus far greater than Moses was Jesus, who is the new, better, and permanent mediator of the new covenant, with enduring new and better promises than Moses. That's better because Jesus came to rescue us not fundamentally from human oppression, or to fill our food pantries with food, or to fill up our bank accounts, or to make our lives more easy and comfortable, or to boost up even our self-esteem, or to give us whatever we want. No, friends, Jesus came to rescue us from our bondage and captivity to sin. You see, sin before any unjust ruler is our worst master, our own flesh. Christ came to rescue us from ourselves and to absorb for us in himself God's eternal punishment in our place under his righteous wrath. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In like manner in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means in, through, and with Jesus, and Jesus alone, grace and truth has come. Grace has come through Jesus. God's unmerited favor and loving kindness and steadfast love is bursting forth through Christ and Christ alone. And also truth has come to us through Jesus, through Christ, our crystal clear vision of what reality really is, the purpose and meaning of true life. Jesus came to reveal God to us and to reveal in us our sin problem with God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. When anytime someone says, I found Jesus... With a tongue-in-cheek, you could say, I didn't know Jesus was lost. Remember who came to save who? By the power of God's Spirit, Christ now drew us to himself to regenerate, renew, and rewire us on the inside. God's Spirit from the Father and the Son comes to live in all our hearts, writing God's law on our hearts and transform us into that same image as God's beloved Son uh, maybe you remember 2 Corinthians 3. If not, I would encourage you to read it this afternoon where Moses is being compared to Jesus just like John does in his gospel. But I want you to notice the contrast, the chasm of a contrast between Moses and Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18 says this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, if you recall, the name Jesus is the name the angel Gabriel gave a betrothed couple to name their child. This betrothed couple from a town called Nazareth. Uh, the couple there is Joseph and Mary. Uh, we also know that his name reveals why he came. His name means the Lord saves. That's what Jesus' name means, that he would save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. Now, this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah spoke hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin would conceive from the Holy Spirit and bear a son, And his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. As you notice there in verse 17, John includes that messianic title of Jesus Christ. Uh, So if you're new to the Bible and you're wondering, hey, is Christ Jesus' last name? Well, I just want to encourage you, that's that's normal to ask that, like Blake Boylston or Nathan Cole. No, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title, it's a title that God gave Jesus. It's the title that shows that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings were pointing to. Friends, that means that Jesus would not be the shadow, but the substance. Jesus is not the preview, but the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is God's chosen Messiah. Messiah. And there will never be another one after him. He will never run for office. He and he alone reigns right now over the nations on the throne of David, and he will remain there forever. And in this prologue, John also uses other descriptions and titles of Jesus. So you notice there down in verse 1 and in verse 14, he's called the Word. In verse 4, he's called the Life. In verses 4 to 9, he's called the true light of men. And in verse 14, he's called the only son from the Father. Each of these descriptions are John's way of pulling us in closer, wanting us to stay a while, pull up this seat, cancel whatever other obligations you once had, to get past the small talk and to challenge you and I and to compel you and I to get to know who this Jesus really is. In other words, John doesn't want us to have much small talk when it comes to Jesus. He quickly wants us to take a real close look at Jesus and notice how Jesus demands our attention and to ponder anew. John is like a tour guide, wanting to skip to the main attraction and show us the Mount Everest picture of Jesus. And it causes us to ask some humbling and soberly questions this morning, friends. How well do I know this Jesus? How well do you know this Jesus? So referring back to our first impression questions, as John introduces us to Jesus, let's find out what we discover about him. So if you're taking notes, I'll break it up into real two, two uh, conversation questions and then a few applications at the end. Conversation question number one, who is Jesus and where is he from? Who is Jesus and where is he from? Look again now with me at verses one to three. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John begins his introduction not starting in a manger scene, not going to the temple when he was 12. John goes way, way, way back. It's like when someone asks you, hey, what were you like when you were 14? Whoa, that is back in the day. Well, John's taken us way, way, way back in the day, even at the time of creation, and even before creation. When John's original audience had read this opening dialogue, this first declaration, it would have immediately brought to their mind the first pages of the Law of Moses in the book of Genesis, in particular, the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. Janssen read earlier some of these verses from Genesis 1-4, to 4, or 1-1-4. to 4. Notice again, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Look at John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. You see, friends, when John would have introduced Jesus to his hearers like this, immediately they would have been thinking of the creation account. However, before we can focus on creation, John brings something to our attention that's quite profound. According to John 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, even before creation, the word already existed. The verb was, you can circle it if you'd like, there in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. It's in the imperfect tense, which is another way of saying the word was in existence even before the beginning of creation. And friends, we know this not simply because of the verb tense, but because we know who he is with. You see, the word is and was and has always been. There has never been a time that the word was not. So who is the word with? And who is the word been with from eternity past? He says there in verse one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Look at then verse two. He repeats it. So you, if you forgot it the first time, he says, He was in the beginning with God. Well, that begs the question who is God? Well, God is the creator of everything. The heavens, the earth, and all that exist. So, if you would, hold your place in John 1. Turn back to the very first page of the Bible, not the table of contents. That's not inspired. Genesis 1 1. Genesis 1 1. Look with me in verses 1 to 5. So, I'll read the first five verses so you can hear it afresh. And then I'm going to summarize the rest of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, as you read throughout the remainder of the creation account, you will see, I will see, that God made everything. He made the heaven and the dry land, He called earth and the waters that were gathered together, He called seas, verses 6 to 10. He caused the earth to sprout vegetation, plants, fruit trees, each according to its kind, verses 11 to 13. He created the sun and the moon to rule the day and night respectively in order to give light on the earth, verses 14 to 19. He created living creatures, both sea creatures and birds of the air, each according to its kind, verses 20 to 23. Then he brought forth even more living creatures, livestock and other beasts to the earth, each according to their kinds, 24 to 25. And finally, he created the first man and first woman. As the only part of his creation to bear his own image, he created them after his own likeness, male and female, verses 26 to 27. I'll turn back to John 1. So being the creator of all things, God has always existed, listen, And there was never a time that God was not. God is the uncreated creator. He is the uncaused originator. He has no beginning and origin. He is not part of creation as if he is living in animals, trees, or inanimate objects. No, our God speaks, he wills, and creation comes into existence by his command. And God Said, let there be, and it was. God is not the figment of man's imagination or some religious experiment to create a placebo effect to pretend there's some kind of guy up there upstairs to pray to. No, the scriptures repeat the same song, the same thing over and over again. Our God is there, our God is here, our God is near, he is not silent, and he is intimately personal with his creatures. He is a communicating God who communes with his image bearers. But the Scriptures also play on repeat another song again and again, and that our God is distinct and transcendent above us. He's not just in the nosebleed compared to the field to us. He's in galaxies, galaxies, galaxies different and far different than us. Listen carefully to a few of these verses. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Or consider Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator The ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Or think about Job 36, 26. Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. If you've ever read the book of Exodus before, maybe you recall that burning bush phenomenon between God and Moses. Exodus 3. Notice how God reveals himself to the man who will lead his people out of Egypt. Exodus 3, 13 to 14, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It literally means the self existent one, the self sufficient one. God is utterly independent and needs no one. God needs no one to keep him alive like we do. Unlike us, God doesn't need water, food, Oxygen, clothing, health insurance, life insurance, paychecks, a helping hand, a hug, a pat on the back, assistance from anything or anyone for him to be God. To that inference, he is fully and forever sufficient within himself. He doesn't need anything from anyone to be more of anything because he does not lack anything he is god and there is no one who can rival him no one can outdo him no man can call god their debtor and no creature can even compare to him As theologian Stephen Sharnock once said, if man compares himself with other creatures, he may be too sensible of his greatness. But if he compares himself with God, he cannot but be sensible of his baseness. And therefore, we can rightly conclude God is not dependent on us. God has, God is, God always will be. The Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. There was a time this world was not. There was never a time God was not. Friends, nothing is too hard for our God to do. There is nothing too complex for our God to understand. And thus, because his understanding is beyond measure, because his knowledge is without limits, We, friends, can be exhaustively and completely known by this God, but we will spend an eternity of eternities never knowing all that he knows. That means you may graduate middle school, high school, or college. You may have two, three, or four degrees, but you and I will never graduate to the level of knowing what God knows exhaustively. Friends, that is good news. That's why heaven will never be boring for the Christian, heaven will be an endless pursuit of discovery, of wonder, of joy, of love, of knowledge, never getting weary, never getting tired, never being aimless, never being bored. Why? Because God is there. And friends, if you can't say amen to that, you may not know the God of the Bible this morning as well as you think you do. Because He's the point of living. And he's the hope of heaven. Friends, the greatest hour of idolatry in the American church today is on Sunday morning. Many, many people worship a God they do not know. They talk of a God they do not know. They say things about God that are not true. And they start with the man in the pulpit. Pray ccbc that from the pulpit to the pew we would be a people who know the one true and living god that it would not be a theological cerebral exercise but it would be an experience with the living god when the truth about him penetrates our hearts and we behold him in wonder you go to the average church today full of carnal unregenerate people and you start talking about the greatness of god they get bored you talk about potlucks and beating the Methodists to lunch, they get excited. I think we got our priorities mixed up. You see, God is great and greatly to be praised, and as his children, we will never run out of things to praise him for in a timeless place, in a sinless place where we are no longer separated by earth and sin anymore. Friends, that's why every Lord's Day, CCBC must be, not has to be, must be a God-centered church and not a man-centered church. Our philosophy of ministry must be centered upon the Word of God and not governed by the feelings, opinions, and traditions of men. When man takes center stage, God leaves that church. When Christ takes center stage, we bow to Him. God does not exist to make us feel better about ourselves or to accomplish our goals and our plans. We exist to make much of him and to earnestly cry out, not my will, but your will be done. God is great not because we make him great. God is great because he is the source, the fountain, the bedrock, the demonstration, and the definition of all that is perfect. As author Mark Jones puts it, he is perfection, so that nothing extends beyond him. God's infinity consists not in indefiniteness or potentiality, but in the perfection of his attributes. Listen to this statement, God is fully actualized potentiality. In other words, he cannot become anything. He always has and always will be what he alone is, a fully actualized being who needs nothing and possesses everything. To put it another way, we are always in the pursuit of perfection. He is always in the possession of perfection. Beloved, our God is holy, perfect, and pure, flawless and without mistakes, and he cannot improve his character in any way. God does not get progress reports from any principal or teacher on how he's doing in the world. Friends, he doesn't get progress reports because there's no progress for God to make. He's already perfect, and he will never change from that state. As A.W. Pink once said, he cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Friends, just look at our lives. Look at pictures of yourself just five and ten years ago. We change a lot, don't we? Think about the things you used to be excited about when you were a kid or a teenager, adult. Are you excited about them in the same way today? The things you were anxious about in high school? The things you were addicted to and obsessed about in college? Are you the same today? Well, friends, it's probably we're not because we change. Human beings are changing creatures. Change is our middle name. We're like Play-Doh that can be molded, reshaped, hardened, softened, forgotten, and loved, but God is not like that. He's the potter, friends. We are the clay. He does not change, suffer, adapt, or falter like we do because our God is immutable. I know Brad and Jeff are leading through the attributes of God on Tuesday night. This is probably just triple-clicking on everything you're studying. He is immutable. He does not change. And that means whatever he promises us through his word, it'll never fail us. You know why? Because God will never lie. He speaks the truth. He fulfills the truth. And we can bank our life on everything he has ever promised. Friends, that's what brings us comfort in this life. Your earthly father may let you down. Your earthly mother may let you down. You will let yourself down. But your heavenly father will not. He does not change. Friends, if you're struggling with faith in God today, this is what you should be wrapping your weak arms around as an anchor for your soul. This reality. I change and people change, but God does not. He's always good and he can always be trusted. I change and people change, but my God does not he is always good, and therefore he can always be trusted. Hold on to that, because we have a God who is immutable. But not only that, our God is indestructible. In other words, you'll never have a picture of God in the obituary. He cannot be killed, destroyed, expire, grow old, or otherwise be defeated. There is never a pitch our God cannot hit There is never a king, ruler, or a person in authority that tells him what to do. Instead, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. But John tells us something else about God in his prologue and that our God is invisible. Look with me in John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones. John 4:24. And the closest that a fallen creature has ever seen to beholding God has often happened throughout the Old Testament through visions. Think of Isaiah and his vision when he saw and beheld the glory of the Lord of hosts in Isaiah 6. Or think of the pillars of cloud and fire to lead the Israelites by day and night in Nehemiah 9:12. Or think of the tabernacle, that movable or mobile tent of meeting where only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and even that just once a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Consider at Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. The presence of God shook the mountain so much that it brought terror and awe into the people, and God warned the people, do not draw near, for if you beheld my face, you would die. But John doesn't stop there. He wants to direct our attention back to the Word. The Word who has existed from eternity past with this God. But he unfolds one more crucial piece of knowledge. is as if he's taken the last string to tie the shoe to convey to us as the reader. Look what he says at the end of verse 1. John 1 verse 1. And the Word was god let's read that together and the word was god ladies and gentlemen you have just entered into the deep end of christian theology welcome to christology 101 at ccbc the teaching on the person and work of jesus christ john tells us that the word is not an idea. The Word is not a creative or cute personification of an imaginary friend. The Word is not a Word from a distant deity that we can't really know or come into contact with. No, John tells us in the very first verse that the Word is also eternal. The Word is in close communion with our eternal and everlasting God. But then he says this, and the word was God. This, friends, is not a God, Jesus is being described as. He's not being described as God like or godly. The Greek word there is Theos. He is God. But John doesn't stop there. Notice what he says in verse 14, where he mentions the word again. And this time, the word has become something that it once had never been. This is what he says. Verse 14, "And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." So we're back in the small- talk conversation. And John's introducing us to this man named Jesus. Is your mind starting to hurt a little bit? It ought to. Is your mind going, whoa, where's Pastor Blake going? No, the question is, where's John going? Who is Jesus? As we take verse 1 and verse 14 together, we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the Word, the Logos, who became incarnate. That word incarnate just means he became flesh. He became what he once was not. He became a man. While remaining deity, the only begotten Son from the Father, entered into time and history. He, as the infinite, became finite, the uncreated inhabited creation. Or as the fourth century theologian John Chrysostom once said, this day he who is is born, and he who is becomes what he was not. His birth was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit through a virgin woman, yet born in the likeness of a true and real man. Friends, Jesus was not an appearance or a fog-like figure, or sort of kind of resembled a human being that we had to kind of guess. No, he was a real man with flesh and bones and eyes and ears and muscles and ligaments, existing fully as God and fully as a man with a rational soul and a human body, equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. Jesus is both God's one-of-a-kind son and Jesus of Nazareth is the firstborn son of Mary who was raised by his earthly father, Joseph. Friends, that new song we've been singing recently, Sing Me the Song of Emmanuel, the one who created Mary was Mary's very own son. That's worth meditating on just the rest of the week. Jesus walked this very earth, and he lived among mankind, seen, touched, heard, and encountered. Jesus, truly God and truly man, one person with two natures as the second person of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God in essence, who has revealed himself in three distinct persons. Or as the Athanasian Creed succinctly teaches us, we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing their essence. Friends, that's why here at CCBC, we begin and sometimes interspersed have creeds and confessions. Most of us may not have grown up in churches that were confessional. But the reason why we recite those confessions and creeds is not to fill time. It's to remind ourselves who this Jesus is, because every heresy, almost every heresy throughout church history, somewhere along the way, touches on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Study church history, and you will find almost every heresy that's ever been brought up in the church and caused schisms and problems and led people into apostasy is they got Jesus wrong. Friends, CCBC, we want to stand on the shoulders of Christians who've gone before us. We want to recite together, confess our faith aloud together with gusto, with conviction, and with truth. It's a way of catechizing and teaching us who Jesus is, why he came, and to protect us from error. Friends, use those creeds and confessions that are in your worship guide. Every week you see them in there as a part of your personal devotion with Christ. Read the Bible, read the creeds. Also, look back on pages one and two in your worship guide this morning. We have several different quotes from Christians throughout church history on the incarnation. Maybe read one per day at the dinner table with your family. Talk about it. Read John one again. If your mind's like really hurting now, take some ibuprofen, read it again. And then read those quotes with your family. Talk about it, mull over it. You know why I say all this? Your pastor is just like you. My heart gets dull towards Jesus just like you. I put my pants on the same way you do. I sin just like you, I'm tempted just like you, I don't feel like reading the Bible just like you, I don't feel like worshiping like you. I'm just like you. You know the only thing that makes Blake's heart excited about Jesus again? It's not an energy drink. It's not three cups of coffee. It's not me pressing a button. I don't have a button. It's meditating on Jesus. It's thinking a lot about Jesus. The dullness of our hearts is the sign we're not meditating on Jesus enough. Frequent meditations on Christ will produce, as Jonathan Edwards said, sweet religious affections for Christ. Never move past the incarnation at Christmas time as if there's something better to think about. Christmas time is to be the kickoff for the rest of the year, mulling over, wrapping our finite minds around the God man, the hypostatic union, looking through the creeds, looking through the confessions, looking at Jesus in the Gospel of John. Is your heart dull this morning? Then start meditating more on Jesus. And by His Spirit, He will give you sweet affections for Him. Amen? Can we have a little amen there? We are in a Baptist church. That's appropriate. Let's look back at our text in John chapter 1. In verse 3, he goes on to say that the Word, the eternal Son of God, prior to His incarnation, here it is, was also the agent through which the world was created. We read all things, not some, not most, not all but. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Friends, the word, the eternal son of God created everything, both invisible and visible. Think back to Genesis 1 now. If you're ever reading Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, and you'll say, God created the heavens and the earth. You want to get your Christology right? God the Father through God the Son by the power of the Spirit created the earth. That is Christology. That is John interpreting Genesis 1 in the canon of Scripture. In John 1, the world was created through the Word, through the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the next time you look in the sky And you see the moon and the stars remind yourself the pre-incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ did that. Or when we experience the joys of seeing a snowflake from the sky, Jesus did that when you go to the zoo, when you see an ocean, when you experience the changes of the seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, all creation, beloved, is the beautiful masterpiece of the perfect architect and the perfect artist, namely Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's his masterwork, the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Creation is his art gallery. And we are the privileged attendees to that gallery. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Parents, you know what that means for us? We never lack material for family devotions. You know, if you forgot the devotion, I've been looking all week for one that I had with Avery, and she found it, and I'm like, all right, we'll get that one back out. Or you're like, oh, they're getting kind of dry. Or maybe you're just on vacation, and man, your schedule's just thrown all over the place, and you got people at your house, or you're going to see people, and you're like, how are we going to have a family Devo, just three to five minutes of sanity with Jesus? Did you know we've got free material that God left us? When you get tired of looking at buildings, or you're cooped up inside because of bad weather, or you're sick and you can't get out, watch Blue Planet on Netflix, or this new one I've been watching called Predators. Find as many documentaries on the massive volumes of plants and animals in the world you can find. And you know what you will find? You will find flying stingrays, a massive polar bear, a scary great white shark, A fast dolphin, a swift leopard, a ferocious tiger, a bigger lion, a wow, anaconda snake, a pink flamingo, a grizzly bear, bees, and the list go on and on and on. And when you and I are looking at those animals and those plants and those galaxies far, far away, stars, planets, all of it, we tell our children, we tell our spouse, we tell the unbeliever we're sharing the gospel with, Christ made that. My Jesus made that. He made you and he made all of it. Christ is the agent of creation and the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the divine self-expression of God speaking the world into existence. After all, he is the logos, the word. Jesus is the eternal Son who sustains the universe right now, Hebrews 1. He is head over the church, Lord of all the nations, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. The Father, friends, always works through the Son, by the Spirit, in creation and salvation. So let me get real personal with you. We've been staying in the ivory towers a little bit of theological truths. What does that mean for you and I in our very next breath? the very next breath you and I take, it comes from him. And that means the last breath that John will take or Sarah will take or Sandy will take on this earth will be determined by him. The baby Mary held in her arms is the God-man who holds the whole world in his hands. That's amazing. But John doesn't stop there. He tells us why he came. Why did the uncreated come into creation and become like us? Which leads to question number two. Why do some people believe in him and others do not? Why do some people believe in him and others do not? The Apostle John does not shy away from the fact that when Jesus showed up and he declared who he was, it drew a line in the sand. When Jesus showed up, he didn't draw circles. He drew lines. He was not always gladly received. The welcome mat wasn't always left out. At people's doorsteps for him look what he says in verses 10 and 11 he was in the world and the world was made through him he's speaking about the creator taken on flesh yet the world he created did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but before Jesus came into the world who did God send to prepare the way for his arrival. Who was a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the word? Well, there in verse 6, God sent a messenger, a prophet named John. This is not John the gospel writer. This is a different John. This is John the Baptist or John the baptizer who was sent by God to announce the coming of the Messiah so that the people might be prepared to receive him. To learn more about John's ministry, come back next week. We're going to be, Lord willing, finishing the rest of John chapter 1, and we're going to hear a lot about this man who wore strange clothes, ate strange things, and some tough things happened to him in his preparation for the Messiah. John's ministry of paving the way for Jesus, friends, eventually led to John going to prison and even being beheaded. Uh, friends, if you want to be greatly used of God, awesome. It's a great ambition to have. We should pray for that and all of us. I want to be used of you, Lord. I want to make Jesus look great and famous wherever you send me. But look at John the Baptist. Greatly used of God to be the precursor, to be the one who kind of blazed the trail for Jesus. And it cost him his life. Friends, the more and more we want to be used of God, the more the Lord is going to kill the sinful flesh in us. So much that it may even cost us some of our lives. Being bold and faithful for Jesus will mean we won't be welcomed and loved even by people in your own hometown just like Jesus. But as you see there in verses 7 and 8, John was not the point. He was the preview preacher who bore witness, telling people to believe in the one who was to come. But why didn't people like Jesus? Why does Jesus get a bad rap? Why didn't they receive him and believe in his name that they may have life? As you read throughout the whole Gospel of John, maybe that's an encouragement to you this year. Read the whole Gospel of John. I'm already doing the homework for you in the prologue, the hardest passage in all of them. If you read throughout the Gospel of John, here's what you'll find. Some people thought he was a prophet, but nothing more than that. Many thought he was a teacher of the law, but not divine. He wasn't sent from God. Crowds saw him as a miracle worker who performed signs and wonders, but he had no authority to forgive sins. Jesus was called a demon, insane, charged guilty of blasphemy and accused of being a perpetual Sabbath day breaker by the religious leaders of his day. Get this, the scriptures say in John 7 verse 5, look it up, John 7 verse 5, even his own half-brothers did not believe in him. The people closest to him in his family didn't even think he really is who he says he is. And more shockingly, his own disciples had a hard time grasping who he was the majority of his ministry. But why is it that some people, even in our day, do not bow the knee to Jesus? Why is there are so many people you work with or people in your family or neighbors around you do not believe in him and in fact will scoff and might even get hostile towards you if you press into it deeper? For example, Islam claims that Jesus was a prophet but rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus was Michael the archangel who became a man and therefore not worthy of our highest worship. They would say that Jesus in John 1-1 is a God, not Theos, God, and therefore they would say we are heretics. Mormons believe Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. They would also be called tritheists. They believe in three distinct gods, which is not the Trinity, one God and three persons. Others may think of Jesus as simply a good person, a model humanitarian, one who wanted to primarily alleviate physical suffering in the world, be a good example of love and kindness. Others in your life love the idea of being forgiven of their sins. They love the idea of Jesus being their savior and not going to hell. But they do not like the idea of Jesus being Lord of their life. Friends, you can't have Jesus as Savior and deny him as Lord. He's both or he's nothing to us. Friends, that means that underneath the hood of all our lives, the number one reason why people do not receive Jesus and bow the knee gladly to him is unbelief. We reject Our maker. We look at creation, we listen to our conscience, and we suppress the truth that God has revealed to us. Friends, that means the greatest need of the hour is that we need God to change us from being God-haters to God-lovers. And friends, we can't do that. I can't wave some wand over your life. You can't do it to your son. You can't do it to your daughter, your in-laws siblings, your mom and dad, you can't do it. You can't preach to them and automatically they're going to change from being a God-hater to a God-lover. That's not something you and I can do. So who can? Look with me in John 1 verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right To become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, we may have been born into a certain family and born in a certain country, but only God Almighty can make us reborn or born again into his kingdom. Salvation is a supernatural work of God where God takes our hearts of stone and replaces them with a heart to love him. Drawn by the Father to the Son and given God's Spirit to cry out, Lord, save me. Salvation is a supernatural work. It is only something this God, the God we've been speaking of this morning, can do. The Creator God. That's why we should pray that God would save Sinners through the preaching of the gospel. That God would change hardened hearts and make them pliable in His hands. And friends, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, maybe this message is to you. Maybe God is awakening your conscience to know the God you've ignored, the God you've rejected, the Jesus you've cared little about has a lot to say about you this morning. Jesus came to us to reveal our sin problem with Him but not to judge us, but that we might be saved. Friends, Christ came to this earth, God in human flesh. He lived that perfect life of wisdom, of trust, and obedience we have failed to live. And he went upon a cross, that cursed tree, bearing the penalty of our sins. And he died in our place, satisfying God's righteous requirements, so that sinners like us can have peace with God that we can be reconciled to God, that we can be forgiven of our sins and granted eternal life, life in his name. God raised him from the dead, showing that he is our only savior and our only hope. The entire point of our life hinges on that reality, Jesus getting up from the dead. And that's the good news, that we can know this amazing God that blows our mind of how much he is greater and bigger than us. And yet he has shown his love to us by condescending to our level in the person of his son to bring us to him turn from your sins repent of your sins and friends if you here today are already a christian there is no cause for boasting in you and i none of this patting on the back well i made the right choice i voted for jesus friends you can take that sticker off your shirt you were not born by what of blood born of the will of the man, born of the will of the flesh. You were born of God. That means God caused you and I to breathe eternal life from the inside out. He did it. He did it. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen. Mary set a good example for us. When she began to hear this good news about her son, it says in Luke 2.19 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So let's take the example of Mary. She's pondered the incarnation, the news that the angel said this son of yours would be. And let's think about that in our own life. So if you're taking notes, let me give you four reasons to ponder and treasure the incarnation. Number one, we should ponder the incarnation because only God can save us from God. We should ponder the incarnation because only God can save us from God. God is light, and His beloved Son is the light of the world, and the light has come into our darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3, 36 says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's why only God can save us from God. Number two reason to ponder the incarnation. Only Christ has imaged and obeyed God perfectly. Only Christ has imaged and obeyed God perfectly. Look at me starting in verse 14. John 1, verse 14. He has made him known. Friends, we were created in God's image. But as you heard in last week's sermon from Genesis 3, man rebelled against God and that image is now distorted. It has been ruptured. It has been frustrated. It has been ripped apart in some ways by our sin. And we cannot image God the way God calls us to image him left to ourself. That's why Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. He perfectly images and obeyed his father for us. He obeyed where we disobeyed. He imaged God where we failed to image God. And that's why if you want to know what God is like, if your kids ask mom and dad what's God like, just say look at Jesus. What is God like? Look at Jesus. John 1:18 says He, the only God, the monogamous, is at the Father's side, and he has revealed him. He has made him known. The third reason we should ponder the incarnation, only Christ can perfectly sympathize with our weaknesses. Only Christ can perfectly sympathize with our weaknesses. Friends, Jesus was God, but he also became a real man. Friends, that's, that is what's so wonderful about being a Christian. We serve a God that's not just some distant, unknown, unaffectionate, and uncaring being. He's come to us on this earth with human body, with all the problems and sin and temptations, and yet Jesus remained sinless. Maybe you're thinking this year, hey, I want to start memorizing the Bible. Here's a great verse to begin with. You ready? John 11 verse 35. Anybody know it by heart? Say it loud if you know it. Edwin, say it loud. Jesus wept. wept. Guys, get started right there. Check the box off. You got one. Got a lot to go, but Jesus wept. Now, why is that significant? God incarnate wept as a man with men. You read John 11, it's in the face of death. It's in the face of depression and distress. Jesus was literally groaning from the very insides, which shows us that we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses, understands our pain, understands our temptations, and yet he never sinned one time. He alone, better than a counselor, pastor, friend, or spouse, can sympathize with our weaknesses. Number four, last one, why we should ponder the incarnation. Christ is worthy of our worship. Christ and Christ alone is worthy of our worship. Think about this. I could do a whole sermon on this one point, but I won't. At his birth, Jesus was worshiped, Matthew 2.11. During his public ministry, he was worshipped. Remember the disciples in the boat? Storm gets calm. They bowed down and said, wow, and they worshipped him. Matthew 14, John 20, 28. And guess what the angelic host and all the saints are doing and will do forever and ever around the throne and around the one seated at the right hand of the Father. Revelation 5 says, They sang a new song, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Who is that Lamb? We'll come back next week. We'll talk about the Lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. But that's Jesus. On earth we worship him. And in heaven we worship him. Why? Because he's God. I would imagine if you ever go up to the Pacific Ocean, that's the West Coast, folks. It's the largest body of water on planet Earth God created. 62.5 square million miles. Take a Dixie cup or a little kitty cup, a little plastic cup, and tell a little child or yourself to go to the Pacific Ocean and fill up that cup. And I want you to empty out the Pacific Ocean with that cup. Now, what's going to happen? A child's going to try to do it. An adult may try, but most won't. Why is that? You could live to be 20,000 years old, and you will never empty out the Pacific Ocean with a Dixie cup. Friends, we started this sermon with who is Jesus? You and I think we know him exhaustively. You and I think, yeah, yeah, I got Jesus down. Yeah, yeah, he's the son of God, born of a virgin. But you know what John's been doing in his prologue? He's saying, you came to Jesus with a Dixie cup. You came with a little plastic cup, but you better come with a much bigger bucket than that. Because the Jesus we think we know is far greater, far more glorious, far more satisfying than what our finite minds can comprehend. Friends, if you and I get bored with Jesus, the problem is not with the preacher. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. Meditate ponder anew who Jesus is where he is from and why he came in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God let's pray Heavenly Father, we praise you that through your word you show us what you're like. Through your Son, the word, the life, the light of men, the Savior of the world, Lord of heaven and earth, the one who created Mary and yet was held in Mary's arms. Father, we pray here at CCBC we would never get bored with you. You are not a boring God. Father, we pray that you would use John chapter 1, To ignite in all our hearts a deeper, more precious, more yearning inside to serve, to know, to love, to obey, and to worship Jesus. Father, we pray at CCBC we would be known as a church filled with grace and truth because Christ is full of grace and truth. And Father, we pray even this morning that our hope would truly be in Him the God-man, who is worthy of our worship. It's in his name we pray. Amen.